This episode of Riffs on Riffs is brought to you by DistroKid. Gotta wait for that bass line to come in, man. Bass comes in. Feels pretty good, right? It's a good bass line. I feel like skating right now. Trying to do a show here. Hello, and welcome to Riffs on Riffs. I'm Joe Watson. I'm here with my co-host, among other things, booty-shaking <laughs> co-host, Toby Braswell. What is up? Man, considering that this is our last episode of this special season... Say it ain't so. I know, right? Special season of Riffs on Riffs. I'm going to take a song from Drake and say that I'm in my feelings at the moment, Oh, man. wow. I feel you. I do. The views from the recording booth during the riff sessions are the best I ever had. Man, look at you. Okay, can't help but agree. And before we lose you and part ways and ask that, you know, I, I just ask that everyone take care. Mm-hmm. You know, we feel that it's God's plan wow. to discuss some things that, that might be thought of as headlines in this episode. We're done. We're done <laughs> with this now. I mean, I liked it. Now it's back to work, work, work. No, <laughs> All right. Well, let's catch everyone up on the past three episodes. We've been telling the untold story of the hugely influential yet unknown band, 24 Karat Black. This group was born out of the genius of Stax record producer Dale Warren, and we were blessed to be able to speak to some of the band members, as well as author Zach Schoenfeld, to get a firsthand perspective on the life and times of 24 Karat Black. Now, in the last episode, we spoke with vocalist Princess Hearn and Niambi Steele on their life and experiences following the disbandment of 24 Karat Black. Now we turn our attention to sax player Jerome Derrickson, who in many ways has a different appreciation for both the foundation that 24 Karat Black provided him and the legacy it has left behind. Jerome has an impressive legacy of his own and some singular insights into another tragic artist's life. I asked him directly about the band's impact. Let's hear what he had to say. How do you feel about sort of this legacy of all these current artists taking your music and reinterpreting it? I'm very impressed. I would have never thought that I would have been part of something that became so like a historical fact or something, you know, of that nature. I never thought I would be part of anything like that. And then even now, I'm not running around patting myself on the back or anything like that. From being a part of that in the past, I'm happy that I was I was in that. I made my family proud. I made a legacy for myself and those that I'm involved with to actually look back on and command that respect when I walk in a room with musicians and people that know who I am. There's no hard feelings on the... Oh, no. Not at all. Not at all. No hard feelings from none of my experiences because it was all a learning experience. It probably would have been some hard feelings if I didn't land on my feet to where I could continue on with my career and my life like I'm doing now. So I can't help but think that this is a stark contrast to the thoughts of Princess and Niambi. Jerome isn't bitter, he's grateful. That's really something considering that Jay-Z, Kendrick Lamar, and scores of others have songs that sample 24 Karat Black, and the band members have never seen a single penny from any of that. But as he says, his 24 Karat Black experience was a springboard for future success. It's a lot easier to be grateful when that happens. Well, I agree. And after doing some thinking, I came up with an analogy that made it all make more sense to me. 
Oh boy, I cannot lay it on me. <laughs> well, I, I want you to think about the first girl that broke your heart. Why? Why are we going back there? <laughs> now think about if Halle Berry or Scarlett Johansson walked into your life within the next year. Oh, well, okay. this is turning the right direction. It's a little hard being that upset about old wrongs when you have some really good experiences ahead of you. Okay, so you're saying that my Gal Gadot experience is not out of the question? Well, I'm pretty sure she's married. Dang it! But you might be able to get your Kate Beckinsale moment. Oh, all right. I like where you're going with this. This is an analogy I can get behind. I'm rooting for you to have that moment, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I was, rooting yep. for that moment. You know, despite not achieving acclaim, 24 Karat Black helped send Jerome on a path to future musical success, including being a founding member of the group Zap with Roger Troutman. Now, I wish you could have seen my mouth drop when I found out that Jerome was a part of Zap. Dude, I was basically speechless. Yeah, you know, I'm assuming that Zap and Roger songs like I Want to Be Your Man and Computer Love all made it onto the Braswell Slow Jams mixtape. Well, don't you damn Skippy. Whoa, you, you didn't just say that. What? You damn Skippy? Were you 87? <laughs> you start talking about the good old days of Bob Hope and Marilyn Maxwell. Hold on, buddy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get you a Werther's. <laughs> Look here, you little whippersnapper. You have no respect for your elders. Wait, you're older than me, right? <laughs> oh, man. Six months, my friend. <laughs> to the day. But apparently you take this old soul idea to a whole new level. Anyway, I digress. Please tell us more about Zap. As many longtime Rift's listeners will remember, Zap was a funk band that came out of Dayton, Ohio in the late 1970s and consisted of the Troutman brothers, Roger, Larry, Lester, and Terry, along with Bobby Glover, Gregory Jackson, Sherman Fleetwood, Eddie Barber, Janetta Boyce, and Jerome Derrickson. The group's pioneering sound, and specifically Roger's use of the talk box, led to Zap's commercial success as their second album, Zap 2. You can see what they did there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Went certified gold in 1982. Much like 24 Karat Black, their music had a huge impact on future hip-hop producers, specifically in the G-Funk era. Now, as you mentioned, this G-Funk influence takes us all the way back to our first episode of Riffs on Riffs, when we discussed Dre and Tupac's song, California Love. Bonus points if you can remember the well-known artist whose song they sampled for that track. If you do, you can leave your hat on. Ah, well done, sir. Unfortunately, at the end of that episode, we talked briefly about Roger's tragic death. It's an incredibly sad story that leaves a lot of questions unanswered. As a key member of Zap, Jerome has a very unique insight into those events, and he was gracious enough to fill us in on some of the background, including some never-before-told details about that fateful day. Let's hear what he had to say. You said you broke away from Zap about a year and a half before Roger was killed and, and, and passed away or whatnot. The fact that the murder being committed by his brother, who was also in the group Zap, I mean, that had to be, I mean... It had to be some tense times and there's a lot of confusion as to, you know, how this could even happen, you know, and, and how, how to kind of even move on or, or even know how to feel about, about the whole incident. I don't want to bring up, you know, a painful subject. If you're not comfortable answering it, you certainly don't have to. No, no, not at all. Uh, Zap was a family group. It had four brothers. One, two, Zap, Buster, Roger, Larry. Okay, we had, it, was, it was five brothers, okay? One brother stayed at home and kind of ran the businesses that the group created at home, construction company, real estate agency. That older brother stayed home and, and took care of that, while the other four brothers were on the road with the band. All right, the oldest brother, which was Larry, that's the one that killed Roger. 
he more or less, what happened, the Troutman family was about 12 or 13 children, siblings. Their father was an alcoholic, pretty heavy alcoholic. The older brother, Larry, kind of became the father figure to the family. Okay, so Larry more or less took his other three brothers and told them, okay, you stay off drugs and alcohol. I'll do everything in my power to make the group what it is. And he did that. He negotiated deals and got the group to become Zach and got record deals and so on and so on. Okay, as as the group got bigger and bigger, Dr. Dre, after California Love, was done with Tupac and uh, approached Roger about bringing the group and moving to L.A. Instead of just coming to L.A. and recording, actually moved the group to L.A. Larry, the oldest brother that killed Roger, he felt like he was losing control. And so that particular morning, he went and picked Roger up and said, hey, I want to talk to you because Roger was making plans to move the group to L.A. They started talking and an argument broke out. And it was basically because of that, because Roger wanted to take the group to L.A. and work with Dr. Dre and, all you know, that that bunch, Tupac and all of that. Oh, wow. They got an argument in back of the studio and Larry pulled a gun. Roger jumped out of the car. Larry shot through the door, through the passenger glass door and hit Roger in the back and then actually got out of the car, came around. Roger was laying on the ground and then he shot him again in the chest with a 44 Magnum. Then he jumped in the car and pulled off, went around the corner. When he got around the corner, he stuck the gun in his mouth and blew his head off. Oh, wow. Anger, it just overtook him. And what I just told you is from an eyewitness because there was a, a, an old lady that used to watch the back of the buildings for us all the time. And when the car pulled up, she actually was standing on the porch and she watched all of this happen. My God. The hospital from the studio was maybe four blocks. So when the ambulance came, got Roger and took him to the uh, hospital, he was alive until they pulled into the driveway at the hospital. He almost made it, you know. He died. He died in the ambulance right in the parking lot of the hospital. I have not heard that story. And I did do research on that. I haven't heard that type of detail from anyone. Well, I remember when it happened, I was like, you know, that's crazy. That part ain't out. At the time that that happened, I was actually in the Dayton airport on my way over to the studio. I had just flew in from Atlanta and I was headed to, you know, headed over to the studio. And as I was coming through the airport, you know, it's a news flash. It hit the, all the TVs in the airport. And I went up to the rental car counter to get my car. And the girl said, aren't you a member of Zap? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, Roger was just killed. And I said, what are you talking about? And then I turned around and I saw on the TV screen in the in the airport, and they were they were talking about. It. That's 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 heavy. It was pretty sad. What a story, man! Simply heartbreaking. Roger's gone, but certainly not forgotten. He left his imprint on the musical landscape, and his contributions will be enjoyed for generations to come. Agreed. So Zap had success in their heyday and a sort of second life as other artists began to sample them. On the other hand. 24 Karat Black never found success as a band, but the case could be made that they are one of the most successfully sampled groups of all time. That list of songs that sampled 24 Karat Black is a long one. All right, Tobe, why don't you get it started? Absolutely, but I have to say the hardest part is figuring out where to start. Let's kick it off with Eric B. and the MC that some call the God MC, Rakim. Their third studio album, Let the Rhythm Hit Him, was released in June of 1990. 
The second single from that album was a song called In the Ghetto, which samples 24 Karat Black's song Ghetto Misfortune's Wealth. In the Ghetto charted at number 10 on the Hot Rap Songs chart. I know that Rakim is a revered MC, but not the only one on this list. Keep it going for me. Now we can move on to Houston's own Scarface, who was ranked by The Source magazine as number 16 in the list of top 50 MCs. To put it mildly, he's pretty damn good. Now, he also sampled Ghetto, Misfortune's Wealth, in a song called The Ghetto. That track also features Ice Cube, another MC you might have heard of. Is there anyone else that sampled that Ghetto, Misfortune's Wealth track that we should mention? Now, how about the 12-time Grammy-nominated Busta Rhymes? His name has been mentioned several times on this pod, but I feel like we just haven't given him his flowers yet. To me, he is like the Kevin Bacon of hip-hop due to the fact that he has performed with almost every big name in the industry over his career. Care to get specific about some of those big names? Absolutely. So I'm talking Missy Elliott, Q-Tip, Mary J. Blige, Jay-Z, Nas, Kendrick Lamar, Pussycat Dolls, Common, Jamie Foxx, T.I., Jadakiss, Scarface, Tupac, Rick Ross, and much, much more. Whew, that is a ridiculous list of talent, and I can absolutely see how you can play the old Kevin Bacon game with Busta's discography. Busta's 2020 album, Extinction Level Event 2, The Wrath of God, features a song called Deep Thought that sampled 24 Karat Black Ghetto Misfortune's Wealth. And we are just getting started with 24 Karat Black Samples. In Zach Schoenfeld's book, he talks about how a young artist by the name of Ishmael Butler found the 24 Karat Black album in his father's collection and then sampled it. You may also be more familiar with Butler's MC name, Butterfly, and the group that he founded, Diggable Planets. Ah, uh, Diggable Planets. Pioneers in jazz rap, Grammy Award winners. If only I was cool like that. First of all, you are. Oh. Okay, you are. To me, you are. Okay, second, Ishmael sampled Tyrone Steele's funky drum intro from the 24 Karat Black song, Food Stamps, and used it for the track you just referenced, Rebirth of Slick, Cool Like That, off of Diggable Planet's debut album, Reaching, A New Refutation of Time and Space. Wow, that single dropped way back in 1992. Mm -hmm. So besides the fact that we remember it when it came out, because we're old, <laughs> let's point out the fact that 24 Karat Black had songs sampled almost 30 years apart. Rebirth of Slick was certified gold and reached number 15 on the Billboard Hot 100. So now that we've hopped in the DeLorean and headed back to the 90s, let's keep the magic of that era going. What do you got next? Remember a guy named Sean Carter that went by the MC name Jay-Z? Turns out he also sampled 24 Karat Black on his 1996 debut album, Reasonable Doubt. Check out the closing track, Can I Live, Part 2, featuring Memphis Bleak, and you'll hear a sample from 24 Karat Black's track, Mother's Day. Jay-Z, Jay-Z, let me see. Hold on, I'm going to do a quick Google search. Oh, here we go. <laughs> oh, hey, look, he's got a he's got a separate Wikipedia oh, page just for all the awards he's won. Oh, he must, boy. He must be a big deal, this guy. Well, you, you know it. And some people might say that he lived a hard-knock life. But at the end of the day, he wrote the blueprint, the Magna Carta, the, the Holy Grail. <laughs> All kidding aside, we've named some pretty big names already. Big names. Artists who have made an indelible mark on the musical landscape. We have, and yet I feel like you're just, just teeing it up, right? Like, you got some more for me still. Yep, there's more. There's rapper Pusher T's song Infrared, which sampled 24 Karat Black's song, I Want to Make Up. Infrared was part of Pusher's album, Daytona, that was nominated for the Best Rap Album in 2018. Oh, and that album was produced by Kanye West. Kanye was one of the first to use 24 Karat Black's second album, Gone, The Promises of Yesterday, instead of the original Ghetto Misfortune's Wealth record. But wait, there's more. 
right after this break. This episode of Rips on Rips is brought to you by DistroKid, your ultimate partner for taking your music to the next level. With DistroKid uploading your songs or albums to online stores and streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube Music is easier than ever. Plus, you can easily pay your collaborators with splits and send large files securely to anyone with instant share. And guess what else? You can get a YouTube official artist channel for free via DistroKid. You can send credits to stores and you can use HyperFollow to promote your release. DistroKid has everything you need to succeed in the digital music landscape. But that's not all. DistroKid now offers a convenient mobile experience with the DistroKid app, available on iOS and Android. With the app, you can manage your releases, track your streaming stats, and even withdraw your earnings, all from the palm of your hand. And for the artists looking to perfect their sound, there's Mixia. With Mixia, you can put the finishing touches on your tracks in minutes, ensuring they sound polished and professional every time. And if you need to share large files securely with collaborators, producers, or playlist curators, look no further than Instant Share. It's free to send up to one gigabyte of files, and your music will stream at the highest quality, making the best impression possible. So why wait? Elevate your music career today with DistroKid and unlock a world of possibilities. Riffs on Riffs listeners get 30% off their first year at DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash Riffs on Riffs. Kendrick Lamar liked 24 Karat Black so much that he sampled the song Poverty's Paradise twice for his 2017 album Damn for the songs Fear and The Heart Part 4 the latter of which was the promotional single for the album. Oh, and by the way, that album was certified platinum. And won the Pulitzer. Man. Yeah. Okay, I see you working. Is is there more? Is there more? Come on, I feel like we can keep this party going nonstop to the break of dawn. Mm, I mean, mm-hmm. Nas, Rizza, heck, 24 Karat Black makes an appearance on the Nutty Professor soundtrack, wow. courtesy of Monica. Then we have LP and Jill Scott and Common and... All right, all right, I get it. So in summary, 24 Karat Black is the band you've never heard of but have definitely heard. They have literally been sampled by some of the most elite hip-hop artists of our time. And not just one generation. We're talking about from 1990 with Rakim all the way to Busta Rhymes in 2020. That's amazing. And definitely one of the main reasons we wanted to make 24 Karat Black the focus of this series. And this brings us to the question. With all the millions of dollars, and literally millions, that have been earned by artists sampling 24 Karat Black, Princess and Jerome and Niambi must have earned some nice coin along the way, right? They have to be worth a fortune. You would think, but in short, no. Not at all. Their entire haul would be something only Charlie Brown, Snoopy, and the gang could be proud of. So you're saying it amounts to peanuts? Well, let's just say that whenever a band member raises their hand and says, hey, where's my money? The answer sounds like the teachers from those cartoons. Wah, 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 wah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can do that better. Wah, 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 wah. How? Put a hand of it. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, uh, uh. Okay, there you go. Wah, 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 wah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty good, actually, Toe. Props to Noah. Digging deep <laughs> into your teaching days. Took some direction. It's a tale as old as time, right? And literally, we've heard this so many times in all of our pods. Talented artists, they never reap any financial rewards for their work. 
The reasons are in part because of the way the recording industry is structured. Not to get into the minutia of royalties and payouts, but basically you get paid for writing the song, you know, the music and the lyrics, and the record company gets paid from recording and publishing it. Right. And in the case of 24 Karat Black, Dale Warren wrote all the music and the lyrics, and Stax had the publishing rights. The individual members of the band didn't have any rights to their own performances. No rights means no money. It's true that members of the original 24 Karat Black lineup that created Ghetto Misfortune's Wealth have not been compensated for the work. And the amount that Tyrone Steele was paid for the use of his voice on that Pusha T track, take a guess, Tobe. Hmm. Two dollars. <laughs> oh, no. Let's jack it up. $60.48. $60. crazy. Zach tells a story in his book about going over to Tyrone's house and listening to the infrared track with him. Tyrone's response upon hearing the song, it's great. I just wish I had been compensated. And all the other tracks that have sampled his work, he says, I haven't gotten anything. Nothing. LaDonna talks about how she and Larry discovered how much 24 Karat Black had been sampled. You know, it was kind of funny how we found out about, there was a app someone told us about called Who Sampled Me? And I told Larry, I said, we have this app. You know, I said, do you want to look on there? So we did. And we saw all the different artists who had sampled 24 Karat. And Larry was just blown away. And one of his comments was, where's my money? You know? So we were blown away because we had no idea that Jay-Z, Kendrick Lamar, and some of the um, other people who had sampled that the songs. And when you'd go and you'd look on, listen to that app, and I could hear Princess and Ernest singing. I could hear, you know, the music that they had in the background. And it just kind of blowed his mind that, you know, people were using the music. And, and he often wondered how or who gave them permission. How did they get there? You know, that the music and things like that. So it was kind of mind blowing and kind of puzzling to him as to, you know, how they did that. And still, you know, today I even wonder when I see different artists that I know that have sampled the music and I look at it, you know, and think, how can you an artist who works so hard for something and then someone else can come in and, you know, use the music and you don't give them any props at all. Or I guess that's just part of the music business. It's not a fair business. It's a common refrain from band members. Princess and Niambi and Jerome are honored to be sampled and have their legacy endure. But if money is the currency of respect, they're not getting anywhere near their due. Somebody has to be getting paid. If it's no longer possible to sample the track without compensating the composer for publishing rights and the record company for the master recording. So where does that money trail lead? Well, we talked about how Stax Records went under, and eventually their entire catalog was acquired by Concord Records in 2004. In his book, Zach talks about reaching out to them regarding the 24 Karat Black royalties. Here was their response. I'm going to say this in record company voice. Mm, please. We do own the album in question and do grant sample licenses, charging proper licensing fees. When pressed on how much money they earn from those samples, they simply reply, we do not disclose this type of information. Now, I can tell you that in approaching Concord to license the music of Ghetto Misfortunes Wealth for this podcast, they wanted to charge us north of $3,000. 
three grand to simply to play the music from the band that we're paying homage to in this podcast series. I mean, we aren't sampling them. We simply want to allow the people to hear their work. So I can't imagine what they must be pulling from big names like Kendrick and Jay-Z. So that knocks one source of income off the list. Concord is getting paid, and they aren't sharing, and they're not going to tell you anything more about it. The whole thing is maddening on so many levels. Mm -hmm. So consider this, right? We're trying to bring attention to 24 Karat Black. We are telling our audience, hey, go check out this band. Check out this legendary album. We're not trying to make any money off of this. We simply want to give 24 Karat Black their due. And Toby, tell me, who would this benefit? Not the band members, but Concord through more record sales. Talk about being short-sighted. It's just hard not to think that greed is at the heart of everything here. Well, it gets even worse. Now, when you try to follow their publishing rights, when Dale Warren died in 1994, his estate received all the publishing rights. His estate is managed by his widow, and according to Georgia law, she has sole rights to everything, and she won't talk to anyone. And there's some speculation of millions of dollars belonging to the estate, but it's impossible to get to anything resembling the truth. You know, I want to dive in this a little bit more. We've obviously talked a ton on this podcast about sampling and artist compensation and the gray areas surrounding using someone else's music as part of your own. We've also discussed how it's become such a slippery slope and essentially reached the point of absurdity. True. It seems like you couldn't even write a song about love anymore because someone is going to sue you and say, hey, I've been in love before and I've also written a song in the key of G, so you owe me all of the money on the rights to your track. Exactly. I want to differentiate between that idea of accidental sampling and intentional use. What do you mean by accidental? I find it hard to believe that someone else's music could just accidentally show up on your track. I mean, it's the musical equivalent of someone hacked my account, right? <laughs> All right, so I'm talking more about those sort of George Harrison and the Chiffons moments. I may not be the biggest Beatles historian, but I'm pretty certain George Harrison was never in the Chiffons. <laughs> okay, right? you're, you're correct. But I can't say this about George. He's, he's so fine. All right, okay. Oh, no. I see where you're going with this. You are referencing to the lawsuit that George eventually lost regarding his song, My Sweet Lord. Exactly. So it's one of the early landmark cases of music copyright and plagiarism. George's song, My Sweet Lord, was found to have infringed on the Ronnie Mac Penn song, He's So Fine, recorded by the Chiffons. The crazy thing is, George had no intention of plagiarizing anyone, and he was so affected by the whole ordeal that he didn't record another album for three years. Mm. As he told Rolling Stone at the time, it's difficult to just start writing again after you've been through that. Even now, when I put the radio on, Every tune I hear sounds like something else. Every song does sound like something else. Now, I see what you mean about accidental sampling. The judge presiding over the case, Richard Owen, put it this way in his summary. Did Harrison deliberately use the music of He's So Fine? I do not believe he did so deliberately. Nevertheless, it is clear that My Sweet Lord is the very same song as He's So Fine with different words, and Harrison had access to He's So Fine. This is, under the law, infringement of copyright, and is no less so, even though subconsciously accomplished. And that's a big distinction, the word subconscious. I completely agree, and this is why I think we've gotten so far out of control with the copyright infringement nonsense. I mean, Justin Bieber just had 11, 11 songwriter credits for his Grammy-nominated song, wow. Peaches. Right, 11. I, I, I just really want to know what number 11 contributed to that process. I mean, I believe it was for the use of, yeah, 
Right. <laughs> Pretty important contribution. Really makes yeah. the song. Without the yeah, you just, you got nothing. Man. I love what this guy, Damien Real, is doing with the All the Music Project, mm-hmm. which hopefully will put an end to the whole copyright infringement issue in regards to melodies. For anyone interested, I highly recommend his TED Talk, Copywriting All the Melodies to Avoid Accidental Infringement. It is a brilliant idea and a project that I can totally get behind. Basically, what he and his colleague have done is gone ahead and copyrighted all the possible melodies that could possibly exist. And then they've made them all available rights-free. Voila, no more copyright infringement. You know, this is another topic you and I could riff, Mm. pun intended, on for a while. (laughs) But the one thing we do know is that the members of 24 Karat Black have not been compensated for their work. And we would like to do some small thing to change that. We can't rewrite the past, but we can create a brighter future. And with the support of our listeners, maybe we can do a little something to give back financially to Princess and Niambi and Jerome. All of them are still actively performing, and when we asked if they were interested in collaborating with us on new music, they all answered with a resounding yes. And we've launched a Kickstarter campaign to support these efforts with stretch goals that will generate even more new music. Please head over to riffsonriffs.com to find the link and learn more about this project. And we had such a blast working with them that we would love to expand to an EP or maybe even a full album. But just to get a little flavor of what we're talking about, here's a little snippet of one of the tracks we worked on. Take a listen. And if you dig it, please head on over to the Kickstarter and consider supporting it. Definitely appreciate all of your support. And with that, Tobe, I think it's time we bring the curtain down on this four-part series covering 24 Karat Black. Any parting words of wisdom to share? Uh, I think we can turn to Jerome for some words of gratitude. When I sit down sometime and I, I think about it, I say, wow. You know, I've, I've made quite a few accomplishments and I've done quite a few things and I'm very thankful. If I had the opportunity to go back and do it any differently, I would take the same path. You know, I've been blessed and I'm very fortunate. Great stuff indeed. We are also fortunate and grateful to you for joining us on this journey. Riffs on Riffs is recorded at Evergreen Podcasts. Producer, sound designer, and musical extraordinaire, Noah Fouts. 
Audio engineer and mixing by Eric Coltnow. Executive producers, Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Special thanks to Jeff Kolath, Jerome Derrickson, Niambi Steele, Princess Hearn, LaDonna Austin, and Gregory Thomas for production support. We're hard at work on some more Riffs on Riffs, and we'll be back in your eardrums soon. Until then, thank you for listening. I'm Joe Watson. And I'm Toby Braswell. Thank you for listening. Huzzah. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.